John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1115.pp0302, certificate number 37500. Scrappy-Doo. All right, shadow creature, you're dealing with Scrappy-Doo now. Prepare to splat! Ah! I come on, Scrappy! Run now! Splat later! You said pee-pee. Scrappy has a PP in it as well. Scrappy's got a little PP. It does. It does. Scrappy does have a little PP. That's not canon. Um, None of the Hanna-Barbera characters have genitalia as far as I know. As far as you know, but a lot of them are furry. They're naked. They're just wearing a hat and a little tie. Yep. So Or a vest or something. So for a while, that's what people thought of animals. Or maybe futurelings are all naked except for a little hat or a little vest, and they're like, they think that the interregnum where we all wore clothes was an aberration. Are you all animals that became conscious when you put on a little uh, pork pie hat? My sense is that what happens in the future is that furry culture becomes so popular that everyone is inhabiting either a fursuit or the avatar of a fursuit. And at the point in time where our AIs become sentient, they become sentient within the context of their furry identity. And then even if those AIs are, are if, if they re-inhabit physical form, they do it as furries. But the, the human inside the furry is lost to time. What if there's some kind of convergent evolution going on here where at the same time as animals are evolving towards human sentience, all the humans are putting on fursuits and evolving toward animals. And we're just going to meet in the middle. In the future, there's going to be some weird Yogi Bear looking guy with an ascot. And you're, you're going to have to ask, are you, a, are you a person that just got really into some weird stuff online? Or are you a bear that got, Super caught, smart. got caught by a gamma bomb or something? Right. Like, walk me through where you got the pork pie hat. Um, you probably, well, this is a good question. Did you grow up watching Saturday morning cartoons? I did. Uh, there was a very small period in Earth's history where Saturday morning was carved out, and it seemed immutable to the, uh, uh, us in our generation. But For in sure. fact, it did not exist 10 years before us, and it didn't really last very long after us. The last Saturday morning network programming for kids went away in our era just a couple of years ago. 
But I was raised in that tiny little interregnum, since we like to say the word interregnum a lot. Well, apparently on this episode we do. We don't normally say it, do we? I think we say it a lot, but not this much. Yeah. Let's see how many You've times. You've just said it. We've said it four times in this episode. When Saturday morning was the only time when the networks would show dumb programming for children. There was like no other time of day they would do that. Well, and all of the three networks had Saturday morning cartoons. And if you said Saturday morning to any kid my age, you didn't have to say cartoon because it was assumed. And we all woke up early on Saturday mornings and immediately planted ourselves in front of the TV to watch. Right. With your first day off, the whole day ahead of you, corporate America had figured out a way to just get kids to watch toy commercials and breakfast cereal commercials. (laughs) Right. For like four hours. And then just bug your parents about wanting the new He-Man or the new flavor of Cinnamon Toast Crunch or whatever. It was a phenomenal time because it was, I mean, the networks were investing in half hour long animated television series that had, um, they were not episodic television. Each, each episode. Very strictly formatted. Strictly formatted. And they all came to an end. Um, there weren't plot lines that continued through, except the character development was pretty strong. We knew who the different people were and what they were going to do. You always knew what the pink Panther was, how he was going to react to things. You know, you knew what Bullwinkle would do. Yeah, for, it's perfect for a kid because they all have a very short mission in life. Right. Yogi Bear wants picnic baskets. He does want a Coyote picnic Coyote wants the Roadrunner. The kids in that crappy Dungeons and Dragons cartoon just want to get back to the, the magical amusement park that sent them on their campaign. Now that is a TV sitcom or a, a cartoon that came after my That's time. After Which one time. are you talking about? There See, were, a lot of the ones that were on TV when I was a kid were actually made in the 60s and right. they were kind of in rerun. And they were kind of better. They were like, better. As a kid in the late 70s, early 80s, I could tell that the old Looney Tunes cartoons that were getting recycled for us were very good. Yes. And everything else was not good. There was a moment, a, a, a real line in the sand after the mid 70s, after 1975, where new stuff made for kids was noticeably worse. It was just made very cheaply. And they were not wrong to do so because kids don't care. No, they don't. You you don't even, I don't think you even know what's good or bad. And even if you did, and I think I could tell that the Bugs Bunny stuff spoke to me in a way that Plastic Man did not. Right. But even if you did, it didn't matter because they knew you were going to just sit through it anyway because back then, TV watching was a process of things being on and then you watching them and then they're not on anymore. There's <laughs> right. There's no element of, do I like this? Is this good? Is there something better on channel seven? Do I like, you wouldn't, you would just stick with the, stick with the channel you were on. You would rarely even think, do I like pound puppies more than whatever this crappy filmation show is? Yeah. Pound puppies. Whoa. I, I guess I liked uh, Fat Albert. Well, Fat Albert was tur- amazing. And that turned out to be really the only one of these cartoons that was being made by a serial rapist. That well, we, that we as, know as far as you know. As far as we know. That's right. I mean, well, I, I've never gotten deeply into the backstory of Hannah or Barbera. Uh, <laughs> who knows what they were up to? You don't really want to know what Plastic Man was getting up to with his superpowers. I, I think, think there are actually fewer serial rapists in any media than uh, than you might expect. Oh, I thought you were going to say in every other media than in Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> no, I think, and I was like, wow, that's a news flash. I think serial rapists are fairly rare. Anyway, so I was apparently wrong in my idea that 
Fat Albert was the class of the stuff, but it really, it was, it was much better. Than well, it's the age old question, right? Can you separate the work of Van Gogh from the life of Van Gogh? He cut off his ear and never sold a painting. And yet now there's a big museum to him in Amsterdam. So we do, we, I think we can separate Fat Albert from. Is this the worst thing? Uh, the life of Bill Cosby. I mean, he wasn't slipping his ear into ladies' drinks over and over. It's true. I mean, his voice is there. So if you can't bear the thought of hearing him animate Fat Albert and he and does all the voices, mouth, right? Yeah. So yeah. If, 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 it, if it triggers you to hear Bill Cosby do eight impressions of kids he knew growing up, <laughs> yeah, stay far away. So do your kids, I mean, my, my daughter is sort of pre-internet. She watched a lot of what I considered to be kind of dumb cartoons when she was little. And by dumb, I don't mean bad, but like peep and quack and. Just and like uh, four very young kids. Berenstain like. Bears and uh, what, what was the other one? Oh, like Button Moon. I mean, all these things that are, she watched them past the point, like Sa you're saying. Sailor Moon? No, not Sailor Moon. <laughs> some British, some British stuff. It's true that once a kid gets on, you know, whatever accident in their brain, some musical note or bright colored train or whatever the thing is that catches their eye, they will then ride that for years. Watch and, it for years. And your kid will be into something just inexplicable, Thomas the Tank Engine. And I, and I started saying to her after she was about six, like, are we still really watching peep and quack. And she would say, Oh, it's amazing. You know, she wouldn't get off of it. Now we've just recently introduced three, two, one contact, which is old ones or new ones, old ones. And, uh, she really loves them. So, you know, we finally have sort of transitioned and she always liked Mr. Rogers, but your kids are older than mine. Are, did they go through a phase where they were watching unboxing videos and like ASMR <laughs> videos? I mean, <laughs> people, Twitch streaming video games and, uh, I feel like there, there are YouTube people who have hundreds of millions of views where all they do is just take toys out of boxes. Uh, there is, unlike when we were kids, there is an amazing panorama of really smart, well-made, funny children's entertainment now. I think like, that's not the kind of garbage that we got in the eighties and nineties. Right. There was, there was really just a toy commercial and was, everything was designed to have the fewest poses possible. So the Koreans wouldn't have to draw too many new things that episode. And right. it all looked very cheap and static and very formulaic. You know, the, the Scooby gang does the same thing. Every episode busts the same kind of a fake uh, haunting every episode. <laughs> mm -hmm. Whereas there's a lot more invention and uh, kind of wit and eccentricity in an episode of SpongeBob or Phineas and Ferb. Like there really is good children's entertainment now, which is probably a result of, I don't know, maybe realizing that Saturday morning doesn't have to be a ghetto. Like you can get parents to watch along with the, with the little kids. Better, better parenting in yeah. our era, more, more time for kids, fewer latchkey kids. And, and that sense that you could embed adult jokes in a kid event or a kid cartoon yeah. and the kids would just glance over it, but the adults would go, which, <laughs> which we had in uh, like Muppet form. Like that's kind of pioneered by Sesame street. Right. Um, that it'll be good for the kids to learn along with their parents if there's adult jokes and parody. But yeah, I mean, all, all this stuff now is very good. My kids weirdly had a, a real weakness for kind of gentle old timey stuff. Like as late as junior high, my son just loved turning on Bob Ross or Fred Rogers <laughs> Huh? watching them do something slower and gentler than anything else in their lives. I don't think there's anything better than Fred Rogers at any age. No. I, I like to tune in and have him tell me that I'm, I'm a good person. I hope in the future he still has the kind of 
cultural godhood that he's recently been elevated to now. But I would like to tell you what I often told you when you were much younger. I like you just the way you are. And what's more, I'm so grateful to you for helping the children in your life to know that you'll do everything you can to keep them safe and to help them express their feelings in ways that will bring healing in many different neighborhoods. There was never a time when, when there was ever a hot take about Fred Rogers that he was, that turned out he was anything other there is than no what he was. Out. You watch that documentary about him and you're waiting, no, no, please don't let there be a scandal. Right. No, oh, wait, there's not one. Have you and I talked about this in the Omnibus before, how when we were children, we kind of found Fred Rogers a little kind of dull and little kitty because Sesame Street and Electric Company had jokes. Yeah, well, Electric Company had a lot of cool people in bell bottoms even. <laughs> right. That was the main thing. Yeah. More Paisley. Yeah. Hey, how come Fred Rogers is not wearing Paisley? Spider-Man, hello. <laughs> and as a result, Mr. Rogers seemed unhip. And it, it, I still watched it. It must have spoken to me on some level. But if you'd asked me to defend the cultural greatness of Mr. Rogers, I would be like, really, Mr. Rogers? Yeah, well, and the, the puppets seemed very much... 1960s community theater to me, uh, the marionettes. I looked forward to that because at least something was going to happen besides, you know, the music store guy stopping by with a tambourine. Yeah, there was a little grit over there, wasn't there? There was going to be conflict. Friday was going to be... Lady Elaine was going to be kind of a bitch. Lady Elaine. King Friday was going to be a dick to everyone. You could always see the the Lady Elaines in your life, right? There was always a Lady Elaine in real life who was... Just a little too, she was just kind of an abrasive woman that that had some authoritative role, like at the school. Every or, every every school has one teacher who's a Lady Elaine. Yeah. Every church has one church lady who's a Lady Elaine. Right. There's always a King Friday that's kind of, my I, my brother was King Friday. My brother, Bart, was just sort of like, oh, hello. He likes to make, make pronouncements about how <laughs> things have to be done. I think I'm kind of King Friday, actually. A little bit. In my house. Yeah. I think I, uh, I have a lot of um, eccentric needs that people are... Nice enough to, to cater to. <laughs> to accommodate. You know, you know, dad likes to have the pantry door closed. Like it kind of really freaks him out when it's still open. Who keeps opening it? Every time I'm over at your house, I immediately go in the pantry. It's full of fascinating things. I'm going to give a decree like <laughs> King Friday that in my neighborhood, the pantry door should stay closed, Lady Aberlin. <laughs> The thing, ding, about, ding, the, thing, ding. the thing about one guy doing all, do your trolley bell. Can you do your bell? Can that also be used Let's for? Uh, Which one is closer to trolley? Oh, I don't. I don't have trolley perfect pitch. I feel like. I feel like it's the second bell. It's like the silver bell. He didn't even hide it when he was reaching down to tr- to flip the switch. Yeah. Oh, here comes the trolley. He, <laughs> totally, he like leans halfway <laughs> over. <laughs> Yeah, we know you have a button. Oh, he knew, and he was all about transparency. He was like, I got a button that works the trolley. Not a button. I think it was a lever because he could control whether it went forward, forward or back. back. He could right. slow it down. I remember him going outside and showing, uh, here's the little model of the neighborhood we show at the beginning. Oh, I, I never saw that. I think there were some shows where they were very worried about kids putting on a Superman cape and jumping off a roof or something. Right. So it was really all like, here's the difference. Pretend is fun, but just so you know. Right. Um, I was very into train sets, so that was a big part of... of I love the model city. Yeah, the Sometimes they'd go to a different part of his neighborhood and you'd be like, whoa, whoa, the table goes that far? <laughs> well, a lot of this, uh, a lot of the bad culture wh- where cartoons were sort of 
even if you were a child, you sort of sensed that this cartoon was beneath your dignity. You watched it anyway, but yeah. Yeah, there was such a difference between a Bugs Bunny cartoon and a Puppy Pals or whatever, uh, the cartoons that followed, that even at five years old, you could tell one was infinitely superior. They came and went so fast, too, because of the nature of fads for children. Don't get too attached to this cartoon adaptation of Punky Brewster right. at, at 1030. But also, you know, Bugs Bunny was not so overt and not really overt at all about selling Bugs Bunny merch. But a lot of the cartoons that followed, they came from merch. I mean, sure. they were toys before they were shows. And there was a lot of decrying this. Different kinds of parents' councils would say, they just want you to buy the G.I. Joes. And of course they wanted you to buy the G.I. Joes. Well, I wanted G.I. Joes, let's be honest. Did you play with G.I. Joes? I didn't. I had, I had Star Wars Kenner figures. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you could play with G.I. Joes. G.I. Joes and Star Wars figures could same interact scale. with one another. They were the same scale. Except I think G.I. Joes could bend their knees. They could. And uh, Star Wars could not. So all the cockpits had to be these weird kind of... Uh, well, a Asian tatami tables. Playmobil characters, which were also the same scale, couldn't bend their knees, but they had the coolest like trucks and helicopters and boats. I always felt like Playmobil was kind of second tier weird Euro toy. Like if you're, if you're going to play with Lego, play with Lego. I feel, right. I felt sad for my friends who had Playmobil instead of Lego. I, I felt like they had the best like vehicles, but I never had pro And the problem is I was too old for them. I felt like a lot of those cool little dudes really came into production right about right the time after. that I should have been transitioning to being interested in rock music and girls, but I held on to them and I held on to them so long that it became a thing where if a friend came over, I had to hide my toys, the toys that I really enjoyed playing with, but I had to conceal them because my friends were like, yeah, have you heard like 2112? It's really cool. Temples of Syrinx. And I was like, pew, 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 doo, doo, doo. Well, who would ever go on a date <laughs> if you had a really cool Playmobil Coast Guard rescue set? Thank you. That's still true to this day. It is It is true. I don't want to go on dates. I do want to play with my little Coast Guard rescue set. And, and, and men do regress that way. Oh, right. Ultimately, it will be a model train set for me, won't it? Yeah. I'll be out in the barn with my little paper mache mountains. And you don't have to worry about turning down the dates because those offers will stop coming <laughs> as, as you get more and more into model trains. Yeah, that's right. It all works out. Uh, but the decline of cartoons and television in general happened on our watch and on my watch and on Jimmy Carter's watch. Why, why should you and I take the blame? Well, Jimmy Carter actually sort of came after the first salvos of the end times were fired. When I was six years old, I feel like television entertainment was still sort of in its golden era. And, um, there were a lot of programs that started in the late sixties that continued into the mid seventies that still were based around, although based around a format, there was a sense of scripts being really written by craftspeople. Um, and the stories were internally consistent and there wasn't a ton of pandering. And what are you, what, what are your ur texts here? What did you like watching at that era that you still think is smart and good? Well, let me tell you, Ken, there were a couple of shows in different vernaculars that started right about the time I was born. Sesame Street, obviously, being the, the best part of children's entertainment. Yeah, then is now. And um, Sesame Street debuted on November 10th, 1969. 
and I had just turned one year old. You had just gotten back from Woodstock. I was, that's right. I had just gotten back you, from you, the moon. You had hitchhiked. <laughs> at at eight, nine months old, you had hitchhiked to upstate New York. And so you, as far back as you can remember, you have had sesame. So I was one month, or one, one year and two months old, and my mom had me in my high chair and turned on the TV to watch the first episode of Sesame Street because it was, you know, it was in all the newspapers. Like, there's a new show for children. It will make them super kids. So I watched Sesame Street from the very beginning. I used to call it Streets. I'd, I'd, I'd cry to my parents just as a toddler. Streets, Streets, Streets. And of course, then you could not pop on an Elmo VHS. You had to wait till four o'clock or whenever Sesame Street came on. Well, and Sesame Street was, at the time... Much slower paced. They took a long time to to play out their scenes. There was a, a feeling that you needed to be patient with kids. And it was especially not pandering. There were real life scenarios. People were, um, I mean, Oscar the Grouch was grouchy. He was Lady Elaine in a... Uh, you know, in a fursuit. In a homelessness scenario. <laughs> <laughs> in a fursuit. <laughs> now I'm turned on. Wow, those are, those are a few words that I need to think about some more. But a couple of other shows were released right at that same time. A television show, uh, an animated cartoon that was on Saturday mornings that you may have heard of uh, by the name of Scooby-Doo was released on my birthday in 1969. September 13th, 1969, when I was exactly one year old. Shaggy is one year older than you. Scooby-Doo arrived. Shaggy is a, is a year older than me. Oh, no, you're after. No, I was one. One year old. Oh, you're older than Shaggy. I am one year older than Shaggy. What's, what? it, what's it like to be older than Shaggy? Well, I know. That's the problem. I mean, I was born during the Johnson administration. Zoinks. Right at the end of the Johnson administration, <laughs> but it is a dividing line between me and... I was born before... Uh, anyone had walked on the moon. I'm pre-moon. That is crazy. That's that's OG, original Gemini program. Uh, <laughs> oh, you say Gemini. Well, I don't, but I just saw the Neil Armstrong movie and they oh, all, say, they Gemini. all say Gemini. Yeah. We like Gemini cricket. But we said Gemini, every every normal person. It's Gemini. It's a, it's a factor of being a space muggle. If you haven't been to space, you say Gemini. If you have, what happens? Some kind of cosmic ray hits you and it affects your vocal cords in such a way that you can't say Gemini. I don't know. It's a secret. It's some kind of secret high five and code. If you say Gemini, everybody knows. Oh, do you think they say it for horoscopes as well? Like are these guys cruising bars in the eighties, <laughs> being like, "You must be a Gemini." <laughs> <laughs> it's so much creepier if you say Gemini. It is, it's a little weird. Wow. I mean, even to say, are you a Gemini is creepy, but. And so do you like Scooby-Doo? Well, I loved Scooby-Doo when I was a kid. You know, Scooby-Doo was a mystery show. It was based around the Archies. Um, there was a television show, an animated show about the Archies based on the Archie comic mm -hmm. book. And it was kind of a surprise hit. In fact, the theme song of the Archies which is hey, sugar. Hey, we're the Archies and people uh, say we're arching around. Right. And Archies was, was sort of based on the monkeys, which was a cartoon version of the Beatles. Cause they are a fake band. Fake band. Worth music, instruments being played by studio musicians. And it, I, I'm not sure whether it was the theme or not, but the song Sugar Sugar, sugar, sugar boop, by boop, the boop, fake boop, band, boop, the Archies boop. actually went, went ahead and became a number one song mm -hmm. and, and the number one song I think of 1969. Sugar, honey, honey. You are my candy. It's a great bubblegum pop song. It's amazing. 
I still feel like uh, a punk rock version of Sugar Sugar would befit anyone's rock set. Well, I mean, a lot of punk comes out of, like the Ramones come out of that kind of goofy bubblegum stuff. They love that. Right. Except it's more like Sheena is a drug mutant. Sniffing glue. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. So I loved Scooby-Doo. You know, they solved a mystery every time. It was scary. There was always something scary in the middle of the show, a bad spook that came out of the, out of a hidden doorway in the wall of a haunted house that was, I don't know, like stealing people's pumpkins or... The template was always that the, uh, the, the gang drove around in a van mm-hmm. solving mysteries. And the mystery always seemed to be supernatural, some kind of a ghost, right. a mummy, a sea monster. Something is making the toilet seats cold in our house. What is it? It's a sea monster. And it, it always tied into this uh, trope that uh, hauntings are all done by some elderly caretaker or right. somebody's uh, dissolute nephew. It turns out in a lot of cases in the Scooby-Doo episode to be a property dispute. Yeah. Where, uh, gotta keep somebody from selling. Yeah. The young people that are living in this house, the old caretaker is going to drive them out. And so you're right. At the end of every Scooby Doo episode, the supernatural is revealed to be just a man in a ghost mask. And this goes back at least to the Hound of the Baskervilles, where, you know, a mystery where something creepy, a ghostly dog on the moors turns out to be a big mastiff with some kind of paint on it. Right. Um, I don't know if, uh, is that the Urtex? Does it go back further than Sherlock Holmes? Because now now it's kind of a, you know, there's whole children's book series about, we already talked about the haunted house that turned out to be ultrasonics and cheesecloth ghosts or infrasonics. Which one's, which one's low? Infrasonics. Infrasonics. So now this is kind of our expectation for a haunted house that you're going to be able to pull off the mummy's head and it's going to be old man Griswold. Right. Because Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I mean, Mr. Hyde is truly That a, works, yeah. There's yeah. actually a formula. Yeah, he's a, a bad monster. And not, I, I think in a lot of that old gothic stuff, it, it, whatever it is, the ghost or the vampire turns out to be real. Turns out to be real. And that actually happened uh, within the Scooby-Doo cosmology, too. Wait, um, there are real there are episodes where it's a real ghost? Well, jumping ahead, yeah. Uh, the Scooby, so the Scooby-Doo show went through several permutations, It was originally a CBS television show on CBS Saturday mornings. And after season five, it was picked up, CBS dropped it, and it was picked up by ABC. And ABC kind of struggled with Scooby-Doo to keep it relevant, to keep it happening. And keep keep Fred's sweaters hip. Yeah, keep the, the mystery van 
puttering along now on unleaded gas. It's Casey Kasem, right? It's uh, Casey Kasem is always shaggy. Oh, right. Right, that's right. I had for, I'd completely forgotten that Casey Kasem had the... That I mean, was a real lightning strike during my childhood when I realized that the voice on the radio. Was, did you listen to Casey Kasem? Shaggy. I did. We should do it. Maybe Casey Kasem should be an entry for sure. We he don't really have a should. we don't have a Lebanese entry yet. Because I I spent quite a bit of time listening to Casey Kasem too. And Casey Kasem was a weird Wolfman Jack kind of hip, but certainly you wouldn't expect him to be sh- a shaggy level. By the hip. time I saw him in the eighties, he was just kind of a comforting, besweatered man. Like yeah, he might right. as well have been Pat Boone, like a cool uncle. But Scooby Doo did transmogrify into a show where the supernatural ended up being real. The monsters were real. The ghosts were real. But we'll get to that in a moment. That must have shocked the hell out of Fred and Velma and Daphne. Well, They try to pull off somebody's head and it turns out it actually is rotting flesh coming off in their hands. They're like, no, this is a real mummy. <laughs> that wasn't a problem, but uh, I'll cover that in a second. Sorry. Um, another show that debuted in that same autumn of 1969, and we're talking about Two weeks later, on September 26th, 1969, The Brady Bunch, a live-action primetime sitcom. Exactly contemporaneous. So Scooby-Doo and Brady Bunch are both completely contemporaneous and both expressing like different edges uh, of hip 60s culture. Scooby-Doo having a kind of Dobie Gillis version of like, shabba de doo doo wah kind of 60s, and the Brady Bunch being an like an iteration of this new idea of a combined family. Divorce is, n- it's never explicit. Um, like the, like, they don't say what happened no, to uh, Carol's husband. Carol's or? husband remains kind of a mystery, but like Mike's wife died, so he kind of has the moral upper hand here being a... Uh, being a widower. Yeah, it's okay to be a, I guess it's okay to be a divorced woman. It's but not it, really, uh, but that's why it's never specified. But apparently better than being a divorced man, since he's the one they chose to explicitly make the survivor. Right. He's given a kind of, uh, he's given the he's imprimatur of, yeah. of, uh, of never having betrayed his family. Yeah, I never would have left my, yeah, I, I, I never had an affair with my secretary. But because they were Robert Reed's gay. They were <laughs> he had, he had an affair with this driver. <laughs> he had an affair with the person that permed his hair later on in the seventies. <laughs> uh, but they were, you know, he was an architect, and I think at the time there was a realization that within American culture, blended families were becoming a lot more commonplace. There was a statistic that like thirty percent of American families had children from a prior relationship being raised by a stepfather or a stepmother. And no representation on TV for them. No representation. But also it was like a time when television was trying to stay really current with the issues and also, and also like meaningful television was still, uh, this was, this was pre all in the family. Yeah. Two years before all in the family. So the Brady's were, they were three girls and three boys blended together, and there was never really a step-sibling relationship. In fact, Mrs. Brady at one point says that the only steps in our house are leading to the second floor. Oh, they don't have a basement. They don't, no, because they live in a cool mid-century modern house. With the AstroTurf yard. Yeah. <laughs> but so the, the early shows were about the two groups of siblings kind of hashing out some normal teen 
dynamics and boy-girl dynamics. But yeah, very quickly, it's just a, a big family status quo. Right. It and, might as well be Little House on the Prairie. And as emblematic of the times, the ladies all took the Brady surname. Mm. So, I mean, Jan was already a teen, but suddenly she changes her name to Jan Brady from whatever it was before. What is Carol Brady's maiden name? Is that is that uh, canon? Uh, I don't know, like Marskowitz or something? I mean, whatever it was, that must have been fairly... Martin. I Martin. guess they would have been Jan, Cindy, and Marsha Martin. Marsha Martin. Marsha Martin. No wonder she... I can see why Marsha changed her name. But think about being a teenager and have a brand new surname and it's never really referenced as part of your growing pains. Because of course they would. <laughs> But uh, the Bradys had in their cast two adorable little moppets, uh, the youngest two uh, kids in the Brady Bunch. Cindy and Bobby. Cindy and Bobby. And Cindy especially with her braided pigtails. Yeah, and her little speech impediment maybe? Yeah, super adorable. And they got to do that thing that sitcom kids do, which is say knowing things that are kind of above their age, but everyone everyone kind of laughs or. And is Brady Bunch the earth source for that? I mean, Beaver Cleaver was a little too old to be doing, I guess you had family affair. There were some fifties and sixties sitcoms with cute kids and, and a studio audience ooing and awing. Well, and the first one would be, I love Lucy. Sure. Um, when little Ricky was born, this was at a time when, I mean, when I love Lucy was on the air, you couldn't say the word pregnant on television. I still have never said the word pregnant on television. Well, you've been on television a lot, but it hasn't come up between us. No, I refuse to say it. I'm... Was that never a Jeopardy answer? What is pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> this is where babies come from. <laughs> Alex, what is uh, getting pregnant? What is a hoe? <laughs> Famously. That's not where babies come from. They but, don't come from a hoe. No, they don't. Uh, they come from a rake. <laughs> Which was the correct answer. When a rake and a hoe love each other (laughs) very, very much. When a rake meets a hoe coming through the rye. Uh, But little Ricky was born, uh, there was an episode which was like the most viewed episode of television for many years. Lucille Ball was actually pregnant, right? She was actually pregnant by her husband, Ricky Ricardo, who played her husband on the television show. Desi Arnaz. Uh, Desi Arnaz, right. I'm sorry. Desi Arnaz, who played Ricky Ricardo, who played her real life husband. But the, the amazing thing about little Ricky was that he, so the episode of I Love Lucy where she delivered little Ricky actually aired on the day that she had her real life son, Desi Arnaz Jr. That's crazy because that's, that's, that's passing Kardashian levels of, you know, reality publicity awareness. It's pretty banana. To actually schedule your C-section for the night your big childbirth episode airs. And she was such a big star that all of America was wrapped. Yeah. Um, so the character of little Ricky was not played by the infant Desi Arnaz Jr. In fact, played by numerous kids throughout the rest of I Love Lucy run. Although Desi Jr. did go on to play, I think, Lucy's kid on one of her later sitcoms. Well, and, and here's Lucy. Interestingly, Desi Arnaz Jr. became kind of a teen heartthrob and guest starred on The Brady Bunch. I think he uh, he was like a love interest for one of the Brady girls. I've never seen that one. And also, uh, you know, Davy Jones of the Monkees guest starred. He took Marsha to the prom, I think, on an episode, a later episode of the Brady Bunch. Is he as himself? As himself. Davy Jones comes on as, you know, Davy Jones of the Monkees because yeah, the Monkees are this. 
really jamming. And uh, can you imagine taking one of the monkeys to the prom or having him take you, I guess that would have been what, what happened then. I feel like as a high schooler in the early nineties, I would have taken Davy Jones to the prom. That sounds mm, awesome. I don't know. Wh- who would you have taken to the prom? I probably like would monkey? have taken. Nikki no, Nolans? I, I don't think it would have been one of the monkeys. Oh, I thought, I thought I'm limited to one of the monkeys. No, no, no. I think I would have taken. Mike Nesmith. Does he? No, you wouldn't have taken one of the monkeys. The monkeys would have been 48 years old by that point. That's what's fun. I think I would have taken Christy McNichol, but maybe not by the, by the time of the prom. No, absolutely. I would have taken Molly Ringwald for sure. Yeah. I'm getting into late eighties there. So for me, it's like Paula Abdul. Oh, can you imagine taking Paula Abdul to your prom? Now that's a thing where people, these kids will get on, make social media videos and they'll, you know, they'll want Zane to, or whoever it is, uh, you know, anybody like, right. I, I think Megan Merkel should go to my homecoming or, you know, and, and these poor, if, if the thing gets big enough and gets on Ellen and the view, then these poor women have to like make a video being like, Oh, that would be so fun. Uh, uh, Carl, I wish I could go to the winter fling, but right. no, but no I can't. that night I have another appointment. Uh, I know, a, well here in Seattle at one point at the Rainier club, uh, some friends of mine booked Beyonce to play a young girl's bat mitzvah. And Beyonce came with all of her dancers and a big light show and put on an hour-long concert or 45-minute concert for a group of about 100 teen girls. Because someone paid her an insane because amount of money? her father gave her $750,000 or whatever. Right. And it was one of those like, fly me in, I'll do the 45 and then fly me home. That's uh, why I've always wanted to be some kind of corrupt Central Asian dictator. Just so, you just know. Just to do that yeah, kind of thing. just fly in whoever you want. Just fly in Scarlett Johansson to be at your cocktail party. Why not? And then fly her home, and all she had to do was stand around with a glass of champagne in her hand. I think that happens more often than not. Wait, more often than not? I you, think that... You're saying that most of the time, Scarlett Johansson I, no, is at some dictator's cocktail maybe party. Maybe not Scarlett, but I think it's a, it's a real side gig for maybe B-list Hollywood people that... Um, it does not extend to game show contestants, which I find annoying. Well, I don't know. How come know. there's no Pinochet type that wants me to do a little fun PowerPoint Jeopardy at his uh, huh. at his 50th? Well, maybe you, now that you've mentioned it on air, maybe all the Pinochets that are listening will be like, you know what I need? I need Ken Jennings to kind of sit here in the royal throne room and, uh, you know, I'll keep my hand on his head. If like, anybody in the Saudi royal family is still listening after our last show, please, I'll, I'll do your gig. Assalamu alaikum. But as the 70s wore on, uh, both the Brady Bunch and Scooby-Doo and a lot of these early 60s, or I'm sorry, late 60s media products started to find that they were, um, they were shedding viewers. They were losing, season five seems to be the season where shows start to really struggle, both to keep interesting stories happening and to keep their longtime fan base. People grow out of the show, right? If you started watching Brady Bunch when you were 12 years old, by the time you're 17, it, it's not capturing your attention the same way. Well, if the youngest kid in these shows, they often cast maybe somebody who's five or six. Right. Then five years later, or six or seven, that kid later is 11 or 12 11 and on 12. the brink of puberty. It's not a coincidence that uh, if audiences were there for the cute kids, then those kids are getting into some awkward ages. And that is what happened on the Brady Bunch. Uh, the two younger kids started to have braces and pimples and not be as fun and not certainly not be as cute. 
and the older kids were outgrowing the show. I mean, if once you're 18, 19 years old, you're not still living in a bedroom with your two sisters. It becomes a, I mean, they can still be heartthrobs. Craig Verity can still be a heartthrob, but it becomes a plot problem. Right. Like, what's he still doing hanging around here? He's a heartthrob, but also kind of a loser. <laughs> And you can do, you can do. He's always just hanging out with younger kids, like yeah. selling them little envelopes of something. <laughs> you can only do so much by bringing Davy Jones and Desi Arnaz Jr. into the show to hip it up. You can, he, Davy Jones can't come back. He can't keep showing up. That would be sad as well. Well, and think hey, about Mrs. that. Brady. Like, hey, you know, Marsha, like. That was a really good prom. Yeah, a uh, great prom. What do you think about going? Uh, how old is she again? You want to come to Hollywood with me and uh, maybe I'll get you into some movies. <laughs> So the Brady Bunch pioneered what later became known as the Cousin Oliver Syndrome. Uh, the Brady Bunch was kind of the first show to attempt to revitalize the energy of the show by shoehorning in an adorable, young, new cast member who is there explicitly to attract younger viewers and whose character is a kind of recognizable trope of a mischievous moppet, you know, who knocks over flower pots and causes all kinds of havoc and is knowing beyond his years, but, mm -hmm. but still lovable and cute, able to employ sarcasm without ever coming across as an ass. And hopefully reminds people of the dynamic that the show had back when it was Cindy Bray, you know, whoever right. the, the previous little kid was. Rudy That's Huxtable, right. whoever used to do that. Here, here he comes, Cousin Oliver, the cute little, like, extremely weirdly John Denver-looking child. <laughs> like, John, John Denver in, in we've, Oh God. We, <laughs> we've made a Lego minifigure of John Denver, and uh, it was struck by lightning and has achieved life. And now it walks around the Brady's That's right. modern home, saying saying nutty things and knock and ruining paintings. And it's actually got a. It's not. It's not just to recapture the vibe of the other kids. It's like it's been genetically engineered to be a little cuter than the last kid, right. a little sassier, a little more snarky, a, a little better catchphrase. Yeah, that's right. And he had uh, he had little round John Denver, little round John Lennon glasses. And did not look like a 60s kid in a mid-century house. He looked like he almost was a proto-80s kid. And this is not something that happens that often in real life, that just as your kids are aging, suddenly a new little kid moves into your household. So it's got to be explained when it happens on TV with a variety of not super plausible explanations. Well, and in fact, it's a lot of parents' ultimate nightmare <laughs> that just as their kids are getting ready to get out of high school, some little like... Somebody reset the clock? Some dorky kid arrives? We've got to wait for Cousin Oliver. And, and the, the specific plot device, and I could not have told you this, is that his parents have moved to South America. To be ar on an archaeological dig. A thing that really happens for sure. And rather than take your child to the archaeological dig where you're going to, you're going to show them a, a brand new world, you're just going to dump them on your cousin uh, and then be gone Presumably for uh, uh, forever. Did we ever see that? Even in the universe of the show, I don't buy the story at all. There's no archaeological dig. No, and I think somebody's yeah. parents are in rehab, or <laughs> one of them tried to stab the other and is now there. You know, some story that Oliver should not have heard. I think they actually show up in safari jackets. I mean, and and in a way, in the 1970s, this was the era of 
the me generation totally neglecting their kids to go on a cocaine <laughs> binge and uh, and live at Studio 54 for six months. So maybe Mike and Carol did believe the archaeological dig story? Yeah, it could be. But Cousin Oliver did not save the Brady Bunch. He arrived in season five, and season five was the end of... Uh, of the Brady Bunch. It immediately went into syndication. I wonder if at the time people could tell it was a desperation play. Because when you see it today, you know, you can see the show just squealing against the tracks and trying to push back. I think Cousin Oliver being the debut of this trope, it was probably initially sowed some confusion. I remember Cousin Oliver arriving and not being fooled by it as a kid, even though I really aspired to that kind of (laughs) chubby-cheeked bowl haircut look myself. That's the hair I had. Every 80s kid had that uh, hair at a certain point. Although this was 1974. So again, it was like the dawn of of tough skins jeans. He was, he really was emblematic of the time. Overalls? But it did not fool people. Um, I guess even if you're not thinking like a showrunner and you're you're still going to be like, who is this new guy? I have no attachment to him. I'm here to see the Brady Bunch. Right. But what Cousin Oliver did was introduce the concept. And the fact that Cousin Oliver failed to save the Brady Bunch did not put any tarnish on the idea Nobody of introducing... Held that against him. No, uh, to introduce a young, funny, like exciting kind of uh, show refresher. In the television show Good Times, which started in 1974 as a spinoff... So All in the Family was such a popular television program that it spun off a lot of other TV programs. All in the Family had spinoffs of spinoffs. And uh, Good Times is one of those. So so All in the Family spun off Maud, and Maud was... Good Time came from Maud. Uh, Good Times came from Maud. And Good Times was originally written and pitched as a kind of gritty drama of a a black family that uh, that were introduced as, I mean, the mother was introduced as Maud's housekeeper and her husband was a, a police officer or a fireman of some kind. Like they were a working class family. Yeah, it's a blue collar neighborhood. And they were going to be addressing real blue collar issues. And this was a dawn of like black awareness within the American larger American consciousness. Also, All in the Family spun off the Jeffersons, which initially was posited as a kind of black empowerment show. Yeah, and that covers your bases. There you've right. got the the new black um, upper Richness, middle class. Right. Yeah, and the new money. And then, you know, but go, Good Times is keeping it real. But both shows suffered a little bit. Uh, George Jefferson, as a, a wealthy black man, could not appeal to majority white audiences unless he was made into kind of a buffoon. He's George a, Jefferson he's a strutting, was strutting, preening peacock. Right, not not the smartest guy, and his wealth is kind of um, mitigated by his personality. In the case of Good Times, the surprise breakout star of the show was J.J. Walker, because um, he was unlike anyone else on the show. He was dynamite. He was. He had a catchphrase, dynamite, and he was played for laughs, uh, which became a kind of problem for Good Times. Because the initial stars of the show, who had been pitched on this family drama, found themselves relegated to being supporting characters. To this borderline minstrel. Right. And um, John Amos was pissed and he walked. He did walk. Um, and the next episode, it's like, well, too bad dad died. Right. Which, <laughs> which is, is for a sitcom. Kind yikes. of a bummer. And, and they found their storylines uh, 
even when they did confront kind of gritty issues, here came Jimmy Walker in a funny hat who found a way. They, they managed to put the catchphrase dynamite into every episode. And I remember as a kid saying dynamite. It was, um, you kind of just waded through all the drama for Jimmy Walker to walk in and, and get all Bojangles. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. But as the drama drained out of good times and the serious actors who initiated the show started to leave the show, they foundered around for ways to keep the show current. In fact, it went through a lot of permutations. And eventually, in season five, season five, they introduced a new character, a spunky young girl, played by none other than Janet Jackson, the character of Penny. Miss Penny, if you're nasty. Miss Penny. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, you know, Janet was not able to revitalize the series good times and it eventually went off the air cute as a button but again unable to save could not times. save the show um and then our friend scrappy doo arrives scooby doo has now gone through a few different permutations now wait a second animated characters do not age animated characters do not age and in fact nobody would think that velma or daphne had become too old to support the show and therefore we need some young hotness aging is a kind of interesting thing within the world of sitcoms soap operas etc but in the case of scooby-doo it had just run its course there weren't enough mysteries to solve there weren't enough old caretakers to keep the, the uh, <laughs> keep the children of 19 we've, we've been to every haunted amusement park in america that's right uh, um, the yeah, children yeah. of 1979 had a lot of, uh, had different expectations of their Saturday morning cartoons than the children of 69. I guess if ratings sag, you have to try something. You have to try something. And in the case of Scooby-Doo, they introduced the character of Scooby's young nephew. Nephew. Born to Scooby's sister. This is always funny because they have siblings. Donald Duck has a sibling, apparently. That's how the nephews come from. Yeah, they have siblings which... Ha Unseen were, siblings. ...were never mentioned before. <laughs> or after. And never mentioned after. But Scrappy-Doo was born to Scooby's sister, Ruby-Doo. Does Ruby-Doo appear and it talks like Scooby, but in like, Oh, hi, I can't take care of my baby. I'm on root stamps. Uh, Scrappy kind of appears out of the fog and Scrappy is a new archetype, which is the super 
aggressive, empowered little like Muppet that believes it is really cool. He's proactive and in your face. He's really in your face. Terminology. And he speaks a kind of like cool kid patois and is a very dynamic overshadower of the normal characters. Scrappy comes in and there's no mystery that Scrappy isn't really engaged in when ghosts appear where Scooby used to go and run the other way. Scrappy goes right at him with his fists up. He's got a catchphrase. He says, puppy power. Puppy power. Even hearing you say it fills me with rage. So you did not like Scrappy. Uh, I was not still really watching Saturday morning cartoons, but just as I was playing with G.I. Joe's, I kind of still was watching Saturday morning cartoons. I was 11 years old, and that still, you know, that was baked into my Saturday mornings. And I despised Scrappy-Doo. Hated him with every fiber of my being because I was old enough to feel that it was pandering and an example of the worst instincts of television executives. Something that that felt forced and false. I was younger than you and still young enough to just watch whatever was on. Yeah. And even I was aware that I didn't like the Scrappy-Doo episodes as well. Yeah. Um, He just, it was a different show. And in fact... Scrappy became so popular, popular by which, uh, popular by measurements of ratings. Uh, Scrappy oh, he su- did help in the ratings. Scrappy succeeded in bringing new kids, younger kids to the show. So much so uh, that the show changed its name to Scooby and Scrappy-Doo and Fred and Wilma right. and Velma were written out of the script. Fred and Wilma and Flintstone? Oh, I'm sorry. Fred, Daphne, and Velma Velma were written out. And this was the point I remember kind of feeling betrayed. Yeah. Like, where did the show go? All of a sudden, it's Scooby, Scrappy, and Shaggy. And the three of them are now dealing with real supernatural ghosts and monsters, which are not revealed to be uh, the the old caretaker trying to take over the property. I love the idea that Fred and Velma and Daphne must have been like the reasonable... um, Scully types who thought that there was an explanation for every right for every tapping and haunting. Yeah, they were kind of wise teens. But Shaggy and Scooby and Scrappy are the Mulders who are like, nope, this is definitely the giant frog monster. Yep. Yeah, you ever hear of the giant frog monster, Scully? <laughs> Puppy power. <laughs> um, this idea was actually parodied in the great comic strip Garfield. Uh, when Garfield, Garfield was introduced in 1978 and in the first year of Garfield by 1979, uh, the character of Nermal, the world's cutest kitten. So you think Nermal is self-aware. It's a meta reference to this kind of, cause Garfield is always like, ugh, this new cute thing, cuter than me. Yeah. Well, the thing about Nermal was when John was around, Nermal batted his or her eyelashes and John would say, oh, aren't you cute and give it a treat? And then as soon as John turned around, Nermal would become very cynical when dealing with Garfield and say, that's right, old man. There's a new cat in town. It's the world's cutest kitten. That's interesting because I would have thought the kind of self-aware poking of this kind of thing, which you see a lot later, um, Poochie on The Simpsons and kind of later revisionist uses of scrappy do all kind of wink at the idea that, um, yeah, sorry, but we have to do this. You know, they're much later, whereas Nermal is ahead of the curve. It's hard for us to remember that the first several years of Garfield, his popularity was due to his 
knowingness. Um, it was an unusual comic to see. I mean, if you just think about your typical comics page cat up to that point or pet, I mean, everything was pretty cute. Snoopy is joyful. Yeah. And the whole, the gimmick of Garfield is that he's Oscar. He's, he's, he's in a bad mood. He's in a bad mood. He's overweight. He's an overeater. He sleeps all day. He's, uh, he's cynical and bitter. And that seemed pretty edgy in the newspaper. They probably then. spoke to cat lovers too. Cause it's Absolutely a lot did. of them had awful, awful, Cats with awful personalities. If you think about the ubiquity of Garfield at that time, he was suddenly on t-shirts and coffee mugs and day calendars. And then Garfield then himself was parodied by Bill the Cat in Bloom County. Bill the Cat being a further evolution of a disagreeable cat. But into like, not just lasagna addiction, but drug addiction. Well, and coughing up hairballs. And Bill the Cat's catchphrase was, app. So... There was an awful lot of internal reference in the culture at the time to this idea of Oliver. And when we saw it in a lot of different places, uh, certainly in Happy Days, as Happy Days reached season five, Happy Days started to run out of plot and they introduced Chachi, who was not a cute little kid, but he was a heartthrobby teen. And I mean, we talk about jumping the shark being the end of Happy Days, but I always felt like it was the introduction of Chachi. A lot of these kids, when they introduce the the new cute kid, it, it does go on to become a heartthrob. This is getting uh, maybe ahead in time a little, but um, the eight is enough streetwise Italian orphan or whatever nephew, I think, that moves in, turns out to be Ralph Macchio right. from the Karate Kid, and the streetwise teen that moves in with the Seavers on Growing Pains turns out to be Leonardo DiCaprio. Right. Um, And we saw it in the Cosby show when as the Cosby daughters got too old to be on the show and all kind of moved on, initially they introduced the character of Olivia. Rudy was the cute little girl, but as Rudy got to be a awkward teen. Is Olivia like a a cousin Oliver reference? uh, Oh, wow. It, It could be like a deep, a deep inside reference. Olivia. The Oliver of the Cosbys. She was the kid of the daughter of one of the older daughters. Right. She, you know, if, if you have that wide a span, then you can introduce granddaughters, which is smarter than having all these corner toughs turn up or uh, coattail relatives. A granddaughter whose mother then disappears to Europe and <laughs> right. drops her daughter off with the Cosbys. And then even later in season seven of the Cosby show, it was, they realized like they'd lost all the daughters now. And Olivia couldn't carry the weight. So Cousin Pam arrived. And Cousin Pam was a younger daughter who had a troubled upbringing. They have to engineer a second level. When when right. Olivia is not, she's not so raven. She's slightly raven. But when you need something that's a little more raven. Yeah. And Pam was a kind of, this was an era of a renewed black consciousness. And so Pam was able to come in and kind of have a streetwise Um, I don't think she was actually like wearing a dashiki, but we were then able to get a more um, hip hop perspective on the Cosby show. I want to tread lightly here, but I I feel like it is notable that so many of these tend to happen on shows with African-American casts. And it kind of plays into this idea, the way that white audiences fetishize cute black kids, Mm -hmm. you know, like... um, where you, you might be uh, troubled or worried across the other side of the street about an African-American adult. Or but, oh, teen. Or teen. Right. But they have the cutest kids. So yeah. as soon as they become teens, the demographic that makes you kind of roll, down, roll up your car window, right. then we'll engineer some new cute black kids for you. Um, and I think a white, white audience America. can really appreciate the sass 
of a little six-year-old black girl as opposed to trying to find sass in someone like Oliver. Um, you, you'll find sass in white teens. Leonardo DiCaprio definitely had the floppy hair and sass of a, yeah, of a streetwise teen. Yeah. Uh, although, like, confusingly, not the drugs. Uh, you would expect Leonardo to also be like these are all, yeah, turning these, tricks. These are all the sitcom <laughs> versions of the actual way that a, a new kid might come to your family. Right. It wasn't like quite my own private Idaho. So then in the 90s, it became like an incredibly widespread, almost universal trope of television. You're just locked into it. If a show stays on long enough, the weird thing about sitcoms is it has to be the same status quo every show. That's what people like about it. It's, it's a weird yearning for some kind of stability and formula. And so if you're making uh, Chico and the Man and Freddie Prinze dies, you have to just introduce some other guy and be like, okay, just kidding. This is the new Chico. Right. And if you're doing... Um, you have to appeal to kids, which is a thing that the assumption is that kids only want to watch shows with kids yeah. on them. Uh, and that, I mean, uh, give me some examples of nineties TV. I didn't really watch TV in the nineties. It was also, it was all these ABC family shows, like, um, with these non-threatening big extended families, like full house mm. and family matters. And on full house, sure enough, once the Olsen twins were, um, fun kind of tween symbols, but no longer cute babies. Luckily, John Stamos has twins and now hey. there's two more cute. We had one before. Now there's two. Cute. It's twice as good. And it happens on um, the Urkel show on Family Matters. There's, I think, kind of a, a a teen is brought on whose name is like Jamal Jerome something. So he's a streetwise orphan named 3J. Right. Which is 3J. not a, is that a thing? 3J? I don't, I don't think so. Like a number I for mean, an I'm initial? Not a, I'm not very streetwise, but, you know, Urkel by that point was, who was always an overgrown child. At that point, he had like a Mephistopheles beard <laughs> right. and it was hard to keep. Uh, Did I do that? <laughs> But then, and it became a trope within anime also, the, and different <laughs> kinds of kids that had superpowers or um, the little kid that could fight like a grown-up, the little kid that turned out to be a brain who was, you know, actually was the only one that could use the computers. Kids apparently loved that character. The, it, the little hack, Lil Hacker? Lil Hacker. And, and uh, Wesley Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation was an example of a character written in to the canon from the beginning who was the cute, heartthrobby, super smart, uh, doogie Hauser of uh, the space show. And, and in fact, those characters were always maybe ratings boosters initially, but came to be reviled by fans of the show. The funny thing is, even though now we're all aware of the trope and we know about the Poochie jokes and how he had to get sent back to his home planet because this never goes well. Like shows are still stuck with this because of their format. You know, if Rory Gilmore is now too old to do that kind of dynamic that people liked, you're going to have to bring in April. And if the girls on Downton Abbey have all gotten married and none of them can really get up to hijinks anymore, you got to bring in their cousin Rose to do the hijinks. I mean, you're just, it's a straitjacket. Like running a TV show is a straitjacket. It is. And unfortunately, I think the ultimate maybe example of this, of the decline of a certain style of television, um, was the introduction of a character by the name of Elmo. 
<laughs> who arrived in Sesame Street, which had always been a children's program and where nothing, no, no, no Muppet ever aged. Oscar the Grouch was eternally Oscar Madison and uh, Big Bird was eternally four years old. But I just got that, that Oscar is messy because of Oscar Madison. Oscar Madison. I never it's thought a, about yeah, that. That's right. It's an odd couple reference. Big Bird should be named Felix. Well, Big Bird isn't really meticulous. Big Bird likes to knock over planters and stuff. He was kind of the... Uh, just a kid. The ironic sort of... Um, Telly should be named Felix. If you think about all of the Muppets are, uh, are kind of children, with the exception of Bert. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but it was determined by the Children's Television Workshop that in order to appeal to young kids, there needed to be a Muppet that baby talked. And did adorably cute things, but also was sort of uh, wise beyond its years. And so Elmo arrived and Elmo became the most popular Muppet. All of the shows started to be written around Elmo and the tone and timber of Sesame Street changed dramatically in a way that um, was very akin to the introduction of Scrappy-Doo in that the, a lot of the old characters, a lot of the main characters found themselves with less and less to do, and the show became more and more infantilized. Uh, Elmo remains one of the most popular Muppets of all time. In my own case, as a parent, I forbade Elmo from crossing our threshold. And I think that's fairly common of parents my age, to feel like Elmo is a thing we all recognize, a pandering, a merch selling, and the idea that it would besmirch such a, a an organization with such integrity That's as Sesame Street. Children's Television Workshop. Yeah, that they would pander so basely to, to an idea that young kids, because I was a toddler watching Sesame Street and grownups talked like grownups and Muppets had very distinctive characters and they talked in full sentences. They didn't babble. And so the idea that a kid couldn't relate to a Muppet unless it talked like a baby was offensive to people my age. But their research was right. The kids loved Elmo. The kids loved Elmo. But did Elmo benefit the kids? And that concludes... <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> There's something in my throat. And that concludes Scrappy-Doo. Entry 1115.pp0302, certificate number 37500, in the omnibus. You said PP. <laughs> this episode has been brought to you by the letter P and the letter P and the number one. Uh, we know we're going to get a lot of angry email from Elmo defenders. There are going to be so many people that are like, Elmo is amazing. And in the future, you have no access to us. But in our day, we were at the mercy of the crowds on social media because we were on Facebook at Omnibus Project on all platforms. Do not at us about Elmo. About all the cognitive benefits of Elmo. We, we know we already. Don't care. We've read the same studies you have. We just don't think they're true. We still hate him. I am at Ken Jennings on Twitter. John is at John Roderick on Twitter and Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to debate the relative merits of Elmo and Cousin Oliver and the Scrappy-Doo and the Great Gazoo, you could do so on our Facebook page where Futurelings congregate. Just Google, just uh, search for Futurelings on Facebook. 
You can contact us via email with your own private confessions of being sexually attracted to Cousin Oliver mm. as a young child. Uh, send those in great detail to omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Mm-hmm. I do not want to read any fanfic about how you and Ken Jennings uh, travel across the United States on a covered wagon looking to get your 40 acres and a mule. What about, what about fanfic where you ship two different characters? Like you really think Cousin Oliver and Penny from Good Times should be together. Oh, I or, bet there's some of that. I bet there's, you know, there is a, there's a fanfic trope called, I think it's Mary, Mary Sue. Mary Sue, right. Mary Sue, where um, typically a female fanfic writer inserts herself into the story as, uh, as the new protagonist that everybody loves. Um, there are variations on Mary Sue, but I bet you there's a world in which Oliver and Penny live with their delightful benefactor mother, who also is very, very, very attractive to to Captain Picard. Or one in which Scrappy-Doo just murders Elmo because he's a monster. I think that would be written by a male fanfic writer <laughs> by the name of Marty Sue. Scrappy-Doo actually is a, becomes a demonic villain character in the live-action Scooby-Doo movies. That's right. So they, they recognize the culture had turned against him but not till the 2000s. Did you know that podcasts about serial murderers are vast majority female listenership? I did, and it's puzzling to me. But it could be that Scrappy-Doo murder fanfic is actually all written by women. That's how we're going to boost our female demographic. We're going to start having serial killer episodes. About Scrappy-Doo. We have a pretty large female demographic. We do, actually. Considering how little... Serial killer pandering, we do. Right. I think it's, you know, I think it's the dulcet tones of your voice. No, it's the, your voice is like, uh, what do people say? Browned butter. <laughs> <laughs> and your voice is like a Stradivarius that's been left in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can send us critiques of our voice in physical form along with any kind of Scrappy-Doo merch. John, right. John wants Playmobil. Um, I would love Playmobil. Sent to him. We do not want any dick butt postcards. We've <laughs> we, already got. We already have one. We already have any all the ones we need. How, what was the what was the correct number of those? I thought we wanted zero. Did you think we wanted one? We did want zero, but now we have. <laughs> now we'll uh, settle for one. One times zero is zero. Uh, you can send any and all contributions to Omnibus Project, PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. Futurelings who are probably listening to this show from their own clubhouse called the Futurelings House with a umlaut over the U. An umlaut over the A and over the U. Really, really mess it up. Kind of like it's it's super duper metal. It's metal. Oh. Whoa, I wish you had a bell. Um, I don't know if I, you know what? I don't want to presume that you would ring that bell for me. I don't want to say, oh, that was worthy of a bell. You don't have a bell, so you can't ring it. You can't even really say ding because you do, you're not versed in the lexicon of the bell. A bell is not a bell till you ring it, as the song says. And I do not have the option right now. Is that an REM reference? Uh, no, it's Rodgers and Hammerstein. Hmm. Kind of the REM of their time. R&H. <laughs> ding! Um, from our vantage point in your distant past, uh, in our own bunker, we have no idea how long our civilization survived, but we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. Uh, unless the catastrophe we fear is the destruction of all social media and a return to written communication, in which case we 
That would be great. We, we await it. We anticipate it with Bring great. on the Forbidden Zone in That's that right. case. Uh, but if the worst comes soon, which is uh, to say if property values in Seattle decline to the point that my on-paper wealth evaporates and I'm back to being someone with $200 in my bank account and no, no wealth in property, uh, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word because I have to go get a job. Ken doesn't have to work. He's a quiz star or quiz show superstar and a, and a published author, but I am that famously rich, yeah. <laughs> that famously rich demographic <laughs> published authors, but I'm a washed up musician. Like what, what, what could make you less money than being a, yeah, but you're not one of the behind the music guys that got scammed. So. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I know I'm, uh, my drug addiction days are long for a washed up musician. You're doing very well. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's the kind of attaboy that I crave. <laughs> Uh, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word, but if providence allows, and if we are dutiful in the number of times we bow in providence's uh, proxy's direction, the Kibla, if you will, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs> <laughs>